Do you want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily. It's called Spotify for Podcasters. It lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. You know I love that, and I promise you the other platforms don't offer that. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can also earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. I've been using Spotify for Podcasters from the very start. I highly recommend you give it a try. Just don't post on Monday. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. Welcome, everyone, to Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross. We got a big show here today, breaking down two finals in Tel Aviv. Djokovic over Chilich, and in Seoul, Nishioka over Shapovalov. Big titles uh, for Nishioka and Novak. And shout out to Marc-Andrea Hussler, the lefty Swiss, who took out Holger Rune in the final in Sofia. Not going to break it down. Can't cover everything, uh, but shout out. I will also answer your comments at the end of the show. I uh, didn't do a mailbag last week, kind of wanted to, so I uh, wanted to make it up to you guys. So instead of doing uh, a little interview, uh, which I'm going to try to start doing more often on Monday Match Analysis after my initial breakdown, I uh, wanted to get to some comments. Although, you know, I don't have time to get to that many, um, unfortunately. Um, so I will... Um, Try to get back on that that mailbag rhythm uh, this week. All right. I do want to start by uh, just giving a shout out to the events. That's right. A shout out to the events. Because a lot of the tournaments last week, and honestly, a lot of the tournaments that we will be seeing for the remainder of the year are kind of temporary replacement licenses because of cancellations of Russian events and Chinese events. And the common thread here, the common theme is these events rock. These events are awesome. And like, I just feel like this keeps happening. Seoul was incredible. It was rocking. For a 250, the environment, 10 out of 10. Uh, Tel Aviv, the same. I, I'd like to also lump in Tallinn into that equation on the women's side. Um, and you know, we've seen it with some other events, certainly, uh, San Diego has been good. Guadalajara was really good. The WTA finals last year, uh, we've seen it, but I just think it, it bears repeating that you come to a uh, Chennai, by the way, last week was, or two weeks ago for, uh, in India was, was really good. So shout out Chennai as well, uh, and the arbitrages, um, you bring tennis to these, event-deprived nations, and it tends to be really, really good. It's almost like some of these communities get a little jaded. <laughs> uh, then again, I completely understand the financials. You go to bigger markets, you get more money. I I, I, I get all that. Uh, the Russian market, the Chinese market. Like I, I understand why the tours are there, and the, the U.S. and the U.K. Like it, it all makes sense. I'm just saying it's it's been nice. It's been really nice to see some of these markets that uh, don't 
traditionally have tournaments, get these tournaments, and generally speaking, they've been awesome. All right? To Tel Aviv. Djokovic, I want to start off by saying I'm really glad he played this week. I think it's a great decision. I think it's going to help him in the long run. I mean, his reasoning is simple. He says, like, oh, I got to make the year-end championships. I got to be top 20. But let's be honest. He he doesn't have to play Tel Aviv to finish in the top 20 in the race. Like, you would think that he could easily not play another 250 for the rest of the year and be very comfortably in the top 20 because, like, it's not like he's outside of the top 20 and he's trying to chase uh, chase his way in there. Like, he's on the inside of it. He's right now, he's 15th. Um, and you figure he's going to do well at your Paris's of the world. So uh, I don't really think that's the only reason. Uh, I think Novak understands that you got to put the work in. Uh, he He's not going to take anything for granted here. And if he wants to be 100% when it's go time, when he wants to be, whether it be you know, building up for Australia next year or building up for the year-end championships in Turin, which I don't think uh, he hasn't won an ATP final since 2015, if my memory serves. Um, you know, and, and he's got to defend that title in Paris or he wants to. Uh, if he wants to be ready for those events, he's got to put in some work here because it's been about a year since Djokovic has been able to really, I think, sustain a good rhythm and uh, kind of get in the habit of dominance. He had a decent stretch over the course of the clay court season this year, but you know he was so far behind when he hit Monte Carlo, still building up in Madrid. He, he got Rome, he got Roland Garros, and then it was time to take another break. So uh, it's time for him to kind of build up some momentum here. And as great as he looked... And, and he looked really good this week. I think it was also clear there's plenty for Novak to work on, you know, heading into next week, which is Astana, which is a really great field. Uh, I think what Tel Aviv kind of showed is that, you know, although he's in an, he's in a great spot, um, it's going to, it's going to help him because there's two things. First of all, second serve was not close to where he needs it to be. That was the biggest issue with his game, technically. And then, uh, in terms of the match toughness, which most players will tell you is the biggest reason why you need to get your matches in, his arm got very tight up a set and a break against Chilich. Very tight. His level definitely dipped. He was able to hang on and um, ride his lead to, you know, across the finish line. But he did get tight, and I didn't watch the Safulin semifinal, but I hear the same thing happened. I hear. So I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what I hear. Match analysis. So you look at the Djokovic-Chilich head-to-head. There's a couple things you know. You know that Novak is the more mobile and the more consistent player in a baseline rally. And... As a result, you figure he's going to dominate second serve points. You figure he's going to dominate rallies over five shots. Um, he kind of did. He kind of did both of those things. Or, I don't know, dominate's too strong a word. You know he's going to have an advantage in those areas, and he did. Um, rallies over five shots. Djokovic, one or five or more, I should say. 
uh, Djokovic winning um, 19 and Chilich winning 13. Second serve points won. Djokovic winning 48%. Chilich winning 41%. And those things go hand in hand, right? When you play second serve points, you get into a rally. When you play first serve points, oftentimes you do not get into a rally. Oftentimes uh, you are um, looking at a bang-bang point on a fast indoor hard court. That initial aggression of the serve plus one is going to allow for some point shortening. And uh, that is what I found most interesting about this match. The fact that if you're going to pick out a generous reading of this match for Chilich, you're going to say this. You're going to say Chilich needs to make first serves. He's got a bigger first serve than Novak. He's got more point finishing power off the ground. And he does it off of both wings. And he's got to, you know, have a great serving day and win a lot of points on the plus one and just kind of control play dictate, you know, from offensive positions on serve. And if he can do that, then on, on Novak serve, you know, he can, he can get into the neutral positions a little bit more often and, you know, eventually maybe he can come through and uh, land some, some aggression at some point in, in rally, right? So the but the question really comes, you know, with with the first part of that equation, which is, does Chilich actually have an advantage in the first serve points? Does he have an advantage in the zero through four shots rallies on first serve? Is his serve plus one better than Novak's? I think that's debatable. Chilich has a bigger serve. That's not debatable. Five miles per hour on average faster in this match. Aces were 13 to 7 Chilich. Over the year, Chilich is winning a higher percentage of first serve points. Over the year, Chilich has a higher ace rate than Novak by a lot. So yeah, Chilich's first serve is better. It's bigger, right? Plus one ball. I think Chilich, uh, yeah, he hits a little harder. But I actually think Novak's is better. It's way more reliable. It's big enough. Djokovic's plus one forehand is big enough to easily penetrate and get the ball past almost any opponent on, especially on this kind of court. And it can get a little bit shaky on the slowest surfaces. Uh, but you know, if there's if there's any court speed helping Novak out, the precision is going to be enough with with his weight of shot. It's going to be enough. Um, and, and the reliability is so much better than Chilich that I actually think Djokovic is better on the plus one. But Chilich is better on the first serve. So uh, who has the better serve plus one in isolation? It's debatable. Who survives the serve plus one better? That's what's not debata debatable. Novak has a much better return. And he can use his legs to neutralize the plus one ball a lot better. So that's a, a key element here. You know, let me take you through. Let me take you through the games that Novak broke here. Two breaks of serve were the difference in this match. And notice two things. Djokovic neutralization off the return 
and Chilich reliability in the serve plus one. Uh, so second game of the match, Chilich hits a good wide serve, has a forehand to attack, and goes down the line approach on the forehand. Bad location. Not deep enough to central, and Djokovic makes the backhand pass cross court for a winner. Second point, Novak won, was a Chilich double fault. Third point, Djokovic won, was a serve, uh, which was a good serve. And it was a good second serve, actually, that Djokovic mishit the return. And uh, Chilich had a forehand to attack, but overcooked it long on the forehand down the line that he was building. Then on the last point, on the break point, Djokovic hit a low forehand block return off of a first serve that was so low and kind of biting that Chilich actually couldn't attack the plus one. He had to trade at cross court and they got into a neutral rally and Novak won. I think off of a Chilich error. Second game of, uh, or first game of the second set was when Novak got the break in the, uh, in the second frame. Chilich started the game by making two unforced errors on the third shot. Third shot is another word for plus one ball, just so everybody knows. Uh, then Djokovic makes a terrific backhand return down the line that Chilich had to trade. He was on the run. He couldn't attack it. He had to trade. It was That was one of the best returns that Djokovic hit in the match because um, it was off of a first serve, and Novak just timed it sweetly down the line. And uh, they get into a rally, and in rally, Chilich makes a forehand on forced error. Uh, lastly, break point. Uh, Djokovic first serve return literally hits the the baseline. It's halfway out, halfway on the baseline, and Chilich has to hit a half volley on his plus one, and it goes wide. The serve was 211 k, is about 130 miles per hour. Djokovic plastered it off the baseline right at Chilich's feet. So uh, there you go, right? You know, you, you look at what's happening in those points. You have some spectacular returns, and you have some Chilich misses on the plus one and you have a double fault thrown in there um and that's kind of your cocktail so that's survival did chillich do that did chillich survive when Djokovic made first serves almost never he almost never did uh Djokovic hit more unreturned first serves than chillich first of all 62 percent first serves unreturned for novak 54% for Chilich. Um, and that, that just goes to returning skill because, you know, again, Chilich was hitting his first serve bigger. Um, and um, Chilich was making more first serves as well. 71%. That's good enough. Like that, you would say before the match, that's what Marin needs to do to beat Novak. He needs to make 71%. And he did it, but it didn't matter. Um I kind of lost my train of thought here. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. So here's kind of the stat of truth, right? Here's what matters. Djokovic won 89% of his first serve points. Chilich won 71% of his. So um, the uh, the zero through four advantage off of first serve, it, it didn't, it wasn't there. There's no short point edge for Chilich, even though he has the bigger serve and the louder weapons. I say louder because bigger isn't always better. You know, if you miss, you lose the point. So, 
Djokovic is uh, is not really now. Look, there's less pressure on Novak to. It doesn't need to be as good because Djokovic isn't afraid of neut- neutrality as much as Chilich is. You know, Chilich when he gets a a short ball, he really does not want the point to get back to neutral. And Djokovic, there's a little bit less pressure. You know, he wants to certainly uh, take control and and win the point flat out. Uh, with his aggression, with his offense. But uh, if he doesn't, it's not the end of the world, where Chilich kind of feels like it might be more the end of the world. So so that plays into why Chilich might make more unforced errors. But at the end of the day, if if you look at the, the reliability on the forehands, it's, it's not even close. And by the way, Novak's forehand, best ground stroke on the court by far in this match, not even close. Uh, Djokovic's serving was extremely clutch also. Uh, he was down 15-30 in the first game of the match. Served three unreturnables to hold. Chilich was pressuring Djokovic's serve at 5-3 in the first set. Novak was trying to serve out the first set, and it was um, it was 30-all. And Djokovic hit three unreturnables on the next four points. This was from 30-all, serving out the first set at 5-3. Then uh, in the second set, 3-2, he's up a break. He does. Uh, he actually doesn't make a lot of first serves in this game at all, and he has to face his only break point of the match, and he hits an ace. So, unbelievably clutch serving. Uh, Novak was slicing a ton. It worked really well early on. Some crucial errors from Chilich early on off of Djokovic's slice. Then I thought Marin got used to it, and it, it wasn't really a factor starting around the end of the first set. Marin got used to it, and he started actually slicing his own backhand quite nicely, and uh, trying not not really trying to run around and hit forehand as much. You know, just accepting the backhand and and going cross court was working a little bit better for him. So uh, I didn't think that was a huge factor after the the beginning of the match. But Djokovic's game plan was definitely to try to to try to slice and make Chilich go down and get the ball, and uh, and try to kind of keep him at bay that way and change up the rhythm. I think that was definitely part of the plan. Um, the one thing I didn't understand on the Chilich side of things is why he wasn't attacking Djokovic's second serves with more venom. That I didn't understand. I have seen Chilich... I've seen Chilich implement that against other players in the past, and I think Chilich is very good at attacking his returns, and he just... It seemed a little bit passive against Djokovic's second serve in this match. And Novak's second serve was probably the worst part of this performance on his part. Um, he His average speed was 82 miles per hour, which is pretty poor. And uh, he still double faulted four times. Like, he just wasn't feeling that shot at all. And I don't think he was feeling that shot much at all throughout the week. So... It was weird for me that Chilich didn't look to take advantage of that, but he really didn't. He really didn't. Um, he hit some, you know, he hit some fairly strong returns, but, I mean, if I'm Chilich, I'm trying to really impose my will off of that return, and he didn't. So uh, that's all. Another title for Novak. Well played. Very impressive. And uh, let's go to Seoul. Shapovalov, Nishioka, not going to go in as much depth for this one. Um, Nishioka wins it. Two sets, two tight sets. This match was great. Quality was awesome. Really, 
uh, a lot of entertaining points. Nishioka's defensive skills are pretty crazy, everyone. Pretty insane. He stole a lot of points. He's really fast. He's really quick, too. I mean, the first step is incredible. Um, he's very dynamic in his court position. He moves, you know, north and south very well. And uh, that's one of the most impressive things I think about him is uh, he actually is willing to get up on the baseline. Not not only willing, he likes to do this. He's willing to get up on the baseline, take time away in order to create some offense because, you know, he doesn't have ground stroke power. Um, so he has to take time away. But he feels the he feels the rally very well. He understands uh, when he's about to be attacked, he he drops back and uses the court his his uh, court positioning to his advantage. He's able to defend very well uh, from a deep position as well. So uh, I was just amazed by Nishioka's defense against Shapovalov's power. He just he never looked rushed. It seemed at times that Shapovalov, and this is just never true for Dennis, it seemed like sometimes it was hard for Dennis to get the ball past him. And, you know, Shapovalov can get the ball past anybody on any surface. That's kind of the point of Dennis Shapovalov. So uh, to see Nishioka absorb that pace and, you know, move and cover the court so well uh, against Shapovalov's aggression was actually breathtaking. And he, he defends with a lot of craft as well. You know, I think one big pattern here was uh, Chapo's net approaches were were pretty constant here. You know, and, and whenever... And look, Chapo... It's not that Nishioka is a defensive player, but if if Shapovalov... Again, Shapovalov he is. Because, you know, Dennis is always looking to make so much happen that, you know, I, I think... A player like Nishioka who needs to work the point more and it takes a little bit more time for him, uh, it's generally not going to be uh, Nishioka really initiating the the sequences that are ending points, okay? It's generally going to be Chapo. Um, and I, I just felt like Dennis was kind of looking to come in so often and it felt like it was playing into Nishioka's hands and like I hesitate, it's not really a criticism of Chapo because I I like him coming forward. I think in general it's a good thing, but sometimes it was just like ooh, like Nishioka is so good with a target. His angles are so so good. He's so crafty, and it just didn't look like. Look, I mean, he was just coming up with great passing shot after great passing shot at a certain point you were wondering if uh Chapo should have been a little bit more selective with his net approaches uh the game that Nishioka broke back in the second set Chapo was basically at net every point basically every point some of them were were uncalled for some of them were silly he was forcing it if you force it against a great counter puncher that's exactly what they want you to do. That's exactly what they want you to do. So uh, I just think, in a way, it's kind of a bad matchup for Shapovalov uh, because this isn't the way that he's going to play. But is it is it better to kind of force Nishioka to 
to to create a little bit by himself. It it is. It's probably better to mix heights, mix spins, uh, to try to kind of be a little bit more patient in looking for ways to finish the point because uh, Nishioka is really precise, amazing timing, and his passing shots are are going to be on point. They really are. In general, though, Chapo was awesome this week, and in general, he was consistent. And I just want to take a moment to say, like, the way it was uh, looking for Chapo out there on the court is it felt like he could really hit out on the ball and take his big cuts without having to sacrifice that much control. Uh, the ball just wasn't really flying on him. I didn't see as many Shapovalov errors that were um, distance-related. Not as balls going long or balls going into net. Um, so something, and, and I don't know what it was, right? Now, uh, there are a couple theories that, that we should kind of look out for. First of all, the racket. Shapovalov is using some new Yonex frame. Uh, that is blacked out right now. I don't think, you know, it's unreleased. They haven't come out with it. Uh, is that it? Did did he figure out uh, a frame that's going to dampen and mute the power enough where even a guy like Shapovalov is going to be able to, to swing freely without, you know, and still be able to control the ball? I mean, it, it's something to watch out for. We don't know yet because we've only seen it here. I don't know uh, what what kind of balls they were using, right? Or or if the air was really heavy, right? Like we've seen Chapo, uh, he had a great run in Miami a little while back. Well, the air is heavy in Miami. That humidity, it it allows him, um, it allows, you know, the ball doesn't really fly as much in that heavy air, right? So it allows him to hit out more. Uh, why did he play so well at Wimbledon? Well, that that what is it Schlazinger Schlazinger I don't know I don't even see them in the U.S. Uh, that ball is is very it, it has almost a deadening quality about it so you can you can really take big cuts at that Schlazinger ball without it flying on you it's just how the ball is so uh, a lot of the times with with Chapo, it's very related to the conditions. Maybe this this technology change is going to be huge for him. Time will tell. Let's see how he does it. You know, the next couple tournaments, right? Um, but in general, he was very consistent. Now, in the big moments, there were some inconsistencies. He missed that forehand volley on set point in the first set. And and look, this isn't another example of Nishioka's speed stealing a point. He stole so many points, so many points. Um, you know. Chapo's first volley, most players wouldn't have gotten there and it would have been a winner. But Nishioka, he got there. He made Chapovalov hit an extra volley and it was an easy forehand volley that he missed. Uh, you go to the second set tie break. Um, it's 4-5. Chapovalov serving. And he has a, a forehand approach shot and he sails it long from inside the baseline. And that's where, by the way, it's going to be even harder to, to control the ball if you're a guy like Shapovalov who tries to crush everything because uh, you have less less court to work with. But from from behind the baseline, it, it really felt like Shapo was in, was awesome uh, because he could take huge cuts and the ball was, was still going in. Um, anyway, that was a bad error at 4-5 in the second set on the forehand. 
Um, and then he he did miss another trade on on match point, taking a forehand cross court, just missing. He was under a little bit of duress, but not not too much. It was an unforced error. So um, it was uh, you know in a match that close, a couple of points. Shapo certainly made some mistakes, but in general, he was very consistent. And Nishioka was incredible, and it was a really high-quality match. Work to be done on the return, maybe. You know, uh, Nishioka got some free points. Whenever Nishioka gets free points, you're kind of raising an eyebrow. Like, all right, you probably shouldn't give Nishioka free points, given uh, the serve that he possesses. Um, Nishioka... Was uh was machine like though, does remind me a lot of a a hardcore Schwartzman, you know, a hardcore oriented Schwartzman, you know, very uh, I think much more comfortable moving on the hardcore, um, and that's you know the surface he feels most confident on. But uh, it is a situation of a, a player who covers the court in terms of his quickness as well as anyone, uh, very very consistent. Um, fantastic off of both wings, especially, you know, the backhand is um, probably better than the forehand. You know, the forehand is heavy topspin, finds good lefty angles, gets it to the, to you know, the backhand side of the court, um, but, you know, can't, doesn't deliver a lot of pace off of that side. Um, but in general, it's it's tough, you know, because it's tough to, it's tough to find a way through them. Really tough to find a way through him. And uh, he's also got great fitness. So <clears throat> all those things considered, reminds me a lot of Diego Schwartzman. Just more comfortable on a hard court. Right, let's get to some questions. Uh, from Road to Dawn. Hey, Gil, I wanted to ask you a question about Yannick Sinner. Uh, would you say this year has been a net positive or net negative for Yannick? He's had a lot of injuries early in the season that hurt his ranking, but at the Grand Slams, he's been really good when it matters. What are your thoughts? Yeah, he's made three quarterfinals at the Slams. Quarters at the Australian Open, lost to Tsitsipas. Quarters at the uh, at, at Wimbledon, lost to Alcaraz. Quarters at the U.S. Open. Uh, oh, sorry, not lost to Alcaraz. Quarters at, the, at Wimbledon beat... Uh, what am I doing? Lost to Djokovic. <laughs> Uh, and quarters at the U.S. Open lost to Alcaraz. Match points. Uh, match point. Um, great win percentage for Sinner. And uh, in Sofia, where he was undefeated, won the title here uh, there the last two years, uh, rolled his ankle, sprained his ankle, and it's kind of... Uh, a continuation of of really the reason to me that Sinner is not top eight in the race right now. He's twelfth, is twofold. I mean, one, he didn't get the Wimbledon points, which would have, which could have been useful. Uh, two, it's just the the injuries and the health from um, kind of just popping up and disrupting too many tournaments for him. So, uh, but but all in all, it's a net positive uh, with the improvement of the serve, with the polishing of the mental game, which I think has become like elite um although you know th there's an argument to be made that he he needs to kind of finish off opponents a little bit better um when he when he has a lead um as the favorite but um no i, I just think he's playing a lot of close matches um but i don't really think it's like a, a mental thing anyway um it's been great 
Like he's a much better player than last year. I don't really care what some of the the stats might say about that. Uh, he's just got to build up his body. But you know the volleys are better. Uh, the return of serve is better. The serve is way better. And uh, I think he's definitely taken a step up. He's taken a leap. Uh, by the way, that question was the rest of the questions were in were in this week's community post but that question was from um the mailbag um a couple weeks ago uh after the US Open and for the Federer retirement and there were so many good questions in that mailbag that I didn't get to so if you did ask a question that you remember in that mailbag um try it again um and same goes for for this time try asking it again because I can't get to everyone even if you ask a good question all right, I'm excited for this one. It was the top-liked comment from Apex of the World, and it's a good one. Hi, Gil. Thank you for the amazing content. As always, I appreciate it. Uh, how does the Lost Gens talent, Burdich, Sanga, Ferrer, I would add Dimitrov, I would add Soderling, compare to the next gen, disregarding Alcaraz? This is only a hypothetical, but I'm curious to know uh, if you think the Lost Gen would have been as successful or more successful if they had gotten the benefit of playing in an era where Rafa and Novak are out of their primes and Roger Murray and Stan aren't the contenders they were. Uh, the, the second question is, what is your most treasured tennis memorabilia? All right, well, let's get to the first one. I got to think about the second one. I don't even know. Um, I've never been a member. No, okay, let's answer that one first. I've never been a big memorabilia guy in any sport. It's never really gotten me going. I don't know. Uh, you know, no, like, I'm not saying, I'm not saying I'm right, but like, you know, autographs and stuff, it's just never got me going. Um, my most prized sports memorabilia is like right here. Henrik Lundqvist signed that puck, that Rangers puck. But like, that's a nostalgia thing from like when I was, you know, very young, I got that puck and it was just kind of like my Rangers good luck charm, but tennis memorabilia. I mean, so these mugs up here and I have more that I actually drink coffee out of instead of leaving it up there. Um, I have kind of a tradition where when I go to a tennis tournament, I get a mug. Um, and that's kind of just like, it symbolizes, okay, I was there. That's kind of my token of remembrance of, uh, when I go to an event is these coffee mugs. So I would say it's that. And uh, this one is from Queens, and I don't know how well you can see it, but it's just a really cool mug. It has, like, a bunch of old tennis rackets on it, and it says, like, the year that they were supposedly from, and it's just, like, super nice. Um, so maybe it's that. I don't know. All right. Lost Gen versus Next Gen. Juicy. Juicy question. I firmly believe that the next gen is better than the lost gen head to head. I think they're better. And, you know, one of the big ways that I think about tennis players is how, you know, can they play at an elite level in all aspects of the game, offense, defense, neutral. And in order to succeed at, you know, in all of those aspects of the of the game, uh, from all of those positions, uh, you generally need to have a, a great combination of of speed, athleticism. So I'm grouping those speed, athleticism, uh, and weaponry, firepower. 
right? Weaponry, firepower, speed, athleticism. You need that combination to succeed offensively and defensively. And I look at the lost gen and I see a lot of guys who were not the complete package. All right. Uh, Burdick was, was slow. All right. The offense was there, played great from neutral, played great uh, offensively, wasn't a good defensive player. You know, he just wasn't elite, right? Comparatively, okay? He was not there. He, he was not quick. Uh, Sanga, same thing. Love him offensively. Love his weapons, his firepower. Great hands, huge forehand, nice serve. Not, not quick. Didn't defend well. Ferrer, very quick, great athlete, great movement, great defense, great from neutral. Offense, power, firepower. You get, you, you get an X, not elite. Not elite, sorry. Did, didn't make it happen. Dimitrov, fast, athletic. Weapons aren't there. Power isn't there. Soderling, powerful. Firepower, offense, huge ground strokes. Not quick. Didn't defend well. Right? Uh, even Del Potro, who moved well, defended decent. You know, he's kind of borderline. Uh, I think he's a little bit more well-rounded than actually everybody in terms of, you know, can you can you be elite offense, defense, neutral, all three? Um, I think Del Potro was close, but still, even defensively, he leaves a little bit to be desired, doesn't he? So, the lost gen, you know, these guys were not the complete package. Next gen. I feel like they are. Titipas, his combination of movement, uh, speed, athleticism, and power, weaponry, it's all there. You know, offense, defense, neutral, it's all there. Medvedev and Zverev, all right, you have really good movers, really good defensively, good from neutral. Some might say, well, Gil, they don't have the offense, but you can't say that with their first serves. Their first serves are enormous offensive weapons, so you can't take that away from them. They, you know, that is where it comes from. So they they have plenty offensively, um, and I, I do see them as as the full package. Sinner, he's going to be the same way. We're disregarding Alcaraz right now, uh, but but who else? Am I missing someone? Am I missing someone? See, like Hatchinov is more of. I don't. I don't want to compare him to those guys. Never mind. All right. I think I answered the question. Right. That's how I think about it. I see these next gen guys as the total package more often than not. Uh, look at Rude. Look at Casper Rude. Quick, fast, enormous serve, enormous forehand, offense, defense, neutral. It's all there. Lost Gen guys didn't have that. All right, next one from Natalia. Hi, Gil. Thanks for a great channel. I appreciate you. Uh, what are your predictions for Rafa's end of season? I was surprised to see his announcement uh, of his South American tour with Casper. Do you expect him to play Paris and especially uh, Turin? 
Also, what will the final eight for Tareen be in your opinion? I'm not going to answer that last one. I, I'm not ready to, I would need to stare at that and uh, spend some time with that. Um, but look, I, I don't know the details around the exhibition with Rude. Uh, I suppose that could be a bit of a hand tip that, that Rafa actually wants to continue with his 2022 season. I really didn't think he would. I mean, first of all, we've seen him shut it down plenty of times uh, when he's felt like his body uh, really needs some some rest. Obviously, he did not play this time of year a season ago. Obviously, we saw that it didn't come back to hurt him in Australia, crucially, where he won a title to start the year in Melbourne, right? Not Adelaide, Melbourne. And then he won the Australian Open. So I would think, especially with the ab injury, you know, the fact that he still wasn't serving normal at the US Open and at Labor Cup. And and that's an injury that like we've seen with a player. I'm going to go to the women's side for an example here. We've seen like a player with like Karolina Mukova. Uh, these, ab, these ab injuries can be nightmares, nightmares. Um, if they don't heal properly with that, um, I mean, and, and his history at these next couple of events, I, I literally think he doesn't enjoy playing them as much as, uh, a lot of other events throughout the year and the baby, the baby, it was, that was burying the lead by me. I should have led with that, by the way. I really don't think he's going to play, but hey, I don't know. I don't know. It, it, it's it's weird to predict players' schedules. I don't normally like to do it, but uh got to be completely honest. I really didn't think he I I guess I, I shouldn't say past tense. I don't think he's going to play for the rest of the season. Um, hi, Gil. Uh, oh, these are a couple of questions about Nishioka. Hi, Gil. Thanks for uh, the coverage. I've been watching Nishioka for a bit, and I honestly find it surprising that so many of his opponents keep attacking his backhand regardless of how often it hurts them. I guess it's counterintuitive to attack his forehand, but surely someone has figured out that going to his backhand will only end in pain. My thoughts and sympathies go to Dan Evans. Hopefully he'll figure out Yoshi's game eventually. All right. Uh, yeah. Yoshi's 4-0 in the head-to-head -head against Dan Evans, or is it 5-0? It's one or the other. Um, when you go to Nishioka's forehand, so first of all, the backhand, it is, it's a nightmare. So it's a flatter shot, and as a result, it it's a speedier shot. So, and it's a total shock absorber. It's the kind of shot where, like, the harder you hit the ball at Nishioka's backhand, the harder it comes back. Um, Matt Willis called those shots like Pikachu, you know, Pikachu shots where like, it's like absorbing the power and deflecting it right back. Uh, so yeah, it has a Pikachu quality to it, the backhand. But the only thing is the forehand, like if you're Dan Evans and you go to Nishioka's forehand, he's going to hook it cross court and you're going to go hit backhands now. So if you're like a Dan Evans, do you really want to hit backhands? Absolutely not. If you're most righties, you don't want to hit backhands. So, you know, it's hard to 
tell a righty to direct traffic at a left-hander's forehand. It's hard. Now, if your backhand is awesome, then I, I do think that would be the way to play Nishioka. You want to get into that pattern because uh, the forehand can get a little bit uh, loopy and predictable cross-court, and you can pick it off and create offense with your backhand if you have a really good one in that in that cross-court pattern. I think, like I think, if if Novak plays Nishioka, I, I don't think he'll mind. I don't think he'll mind. I'll just say that. Uh, this next one is from Adi Tennis. Thanks for the kind words. Uh, was wondering how you're feeling about Yoshi's overall progression and ranked, uh, ranking amongst the younger crew of tennis players. Uh, what does he need to do to become elite? I don't think he, I don't think he can become elite with that serve. Going to have to be better in that area. Um, but. Look, it, it bodes well that like this wasn't just one run. He he had the run in Washington. He made the final. He lost to Kyrgios. Uh, played a bunch of three setters that week and was you know kind of dead. Uh, by the time the final came around, by the way, Rublev is like another guy who. Rublev's another guy who really didn't enjoy, like Nishioka, Nishioka's pace absorption is just so good. So Rublev is just, you know, firing ground strokes with the linear pace at Nishioka and Yoshi's like, "Thank you. Please give me more. I love this." That was the semifinal opponent in Washington. Um he beat Rude this week. That was his best win of the week. Um other than that, it was a nice draw, especially considering Evans is such a positive head-to-head -head against him. Um, so, you know, the results uh, do not suggest a flash in the pan. Uh, early in the year, Nishioka was playing very, very poorly because his forehand was brutal. Um, I mean, I watched him a little bit on the clay, and the forehand was just uh, an absolute disaster. So he kind of figured that out, and... And he's been really, really good. It's just I I tend to think that if Nishioka completely maximizes his talent, I I see him as a top twenty player and not a top ten player. But uh, that would be cool if he proved me wrong. That would be cool. All right, last ones here. Uh, they are both about Casper Rude. First ones from YZ. Do you think Rude and Team are somewhat similar? Both are good on clay first and then hard, not good on grass. Uh, both play the power game. Will Rude be better or worse than Team? I think 23-year-old Rude is better than 23-year-old Team, but Team's peak was really high. Rude's way ahead of Team in in the on the development curve. It's uh it's not it's not very close. Team at 23 uh his serve was just a kick serve. His shot selection was really bad. His court positioning was very clay centric. Um, and his backhand on quick surfaces was extremely exploitable in terms of his ability to 
to defend on it. And the return of serve, again, on quick surfaces was a problem. So team had all of these holes all over his game. And uh, Root is somewhat buttoned up. You know, he's working on the weaknesses. There are a couple, but they are very small. I think uh, Rude can also uh, start to defend his backhand better. Uh, Rude, um, Rude can can probably work on the the volleying, um, the return of serve, and the backhand in general. But the backhand's getting better. It's got to keep getting better. He's got to be able to flatten that shot out. Uh, but but Rude is just a, a more complete player right now than team was when he was 23. Uh, but the end of your comment is true. You say, but team's peak was really high. And and yeah, that's a good point. Uh, the, the success that team had against, you know, having wins against Nadal and Djokovic and, and Federer uh, when they were, you know, and, and they were playing at the time a very, very high level, all of them. Um, it's not like it's not like Rude is close to that right now. Uh, he's actually kind of not. I don't think he's that close to 2020 team. So uh, there's work to be done. There's work to be done for Casper Rude, but he's very much on pace to uh, to surpass team. From Odal. Um, I'm wondering about why Rude has lost to Nishioka so surprisingly in Korea. It seems every now and then he gets a big upset, or is it true that he has yet to prove himself as a great hardcore player? I think what he really lacks is that big wins against top players, and why is he playing so many 250s? <laughs> he never skips one. Uh, I'm going to take a pass on the last one of that. I, I don't have a problem with him uh, playing this one, although like maybe something could be said for resting after the U.S. Open. The only time I criticized Rude's schedule this year is when he was playing clay during, like, Rotterdam. And I just feel like that's counterproductive for his development and counter— Yeah, that's the big thing. I think it's counterproductive for his development and um, his preparation for the Sunshine Double, which he should want to do well at, and he's playing on clay instead of Rotterdam. That, that I didn't get. Um, look, you're right about the big wins against top players. That's why I say, you know, Rude's rate, uh, ranking is, uh, for, I mean, look, he's, he's, he's had great runs at Roland Garros at the U S open. He's taken advantage of his draws there. He's picked up some big wins, uh, but it's a little bit inflated. Like I just, I don't think he's the second best player in the world right now, um, you know he's three and seven this year against top ten players. Is I believe is uh, what I believe the number is. Um, in terms of the Nishioka loss, like there's just one pattern, and and I look that time zone is brutal for me. I didn't watch that match, uh, but I do just want to kind of bring you know a pattern to everyone's attention when it comes to Casper Rude. So he's on a three match losing streak against lefties outside the top 100, um, or actually he was until he beat uh, Mute at the U.S. Open. Uh, but until he beat Mute at the U.S. Open, uh, he lost to Ben Shelton. That was in Cincinnati. Then 
in um, at Wimbledon. He lost to Hugo Umber, who, look, should he really be outside the top 100? We can debate that. Not really. Then again, Umber is such a mess sometimes. I, I called one of his matches last week, and uh, I'm not encouraged by what I've seen from him as of late. Um, so Umber, that's at Wimbledon, and then Ryan Penniston um, at Queens. Now you throw in Nishioka, that's a fourth loss against a lefty outside the top 50. Now let me do this in real time. Let's see what his record is against opponents outside the top 50 in 2022. All right, he's taken six losses. One of them is to Kyrgios at Indian Wells. All right, Kyrgios in 2022, top 10 player. So while that says he's outside the top 50, in fact, Kyrgios was 132 in the world when they played at Indian Wells. Uh, that's BS. You know, that's that's that lies. The statistics lie there. So... Um, oh, and then he also lost, he took a loss to, uh, Dusan Lajevic as well. So if we adjust to reality, Rude has five losses against players ranked outside the top 50. Four of those losses are to lefties. What does that tell you? Well, again, backhand return, not where it needs to be. Backhand in general, not where it needs to be. So he's losing against these lefty patterns. That's all. Um, Nishioka in particular, a lot of heavy angle, lots of lots of uh, height, you know, spinny balls. Like he just mixes it up and he, he drags you off the court. He makes you hit backhands if you're a righty from uncomfortable positions, whether that be you know, uncomfortable because there's so much topspin and loop on the ball or uncomfortable because there's so much width uh, and you're having to move outside the sideline uh, to, to to hit a backhand. So that's that's what Nishioka does. And I imagine uh, Rude didn't handle that too well. I imagine. Again, didn't watch the match, but uh, that's the pattern that everyone should be aware of. All right, everybody, that will do it for this week's edition of Monday Match Analysis. Uh, I will have a mailbag later in the week. Maybe I'll talk to you before then. Maybe not. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe. I'll see you next time. Our house is a mess. Come on in. I'm Amber Wallen, internet comedian, plant queen, and host of your new favorite podcast, Fly on the Wild. Okay, that's pretty <laughs> presumptuous to assume that this is going to be their favorite podcast, by the way. Like, come on, Amber. Anyway, that wasp that you just heard interrupt me is my husband. And co-host, Benjamin Wallen, also a comedian, and I host people at our home. I have a great wine collection in my cellar. Well, you mean cellar. the mini fridge. It's a mini fridge. It's a mini fridge. Yeah. New episodes of Fly on the Wallen drop every Wednesday. Listen in as we discuss relationships, books, and keeping our sweet baby kid alive while we make laughs on the internet. Subscribe to Fly on the Wallen wherever you get your podcasts. Yes.